as a mixed bag of individuals, some of us joyfully running towards your gates, and some of us are limping along. Some of us have family in town and we are excited about the Christmas festivities, but some of us are worn out and exhausted and grieving uh, terrible things. But the thing that we all have in common is that we need to hear from you. So would you, by the power of your spirit, preach the gospel to us? Would you use my five loaves and two fish and spread a banquet for your people to taste and see that you are good? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, sometime in August of 1930, a man by the name of Joseph Crater was having dinner in a Manhattan apartment with a group of friends. After a beautiful evening with good company, good food, good drink, Mr. Crater waved goodbye, flagged down the taxi, and rode off. Mr. Crater was never to be seen or heard from again. Because Mr. Crater was a New York Supreme Court judge, many people initially first suspected murder. But there were, again, there was no conclusive evidence. Others suspected possible mafia involvement, but again, no conclusive evidence. Even suicide at the time was considered, yet the investigation has produced many theories, but again, no conclusion. A search of Mr. Crater's apartment produced an interesting clue that stood out to me as I heard the story. It was a note left on a desk that was attached to his wife with a check uh, attached to the note to his wife, and the check was for a sizable amount, but the note simply said, I am weary, love Joe. I am weary, love Joe. This note could have been nothing more than a passing thought at the end of an exhausting day, or it could have been the epitaph of a man who was despairing. Some have speculated that Mr. Crater disappeared from the face of the earth so that he could finally, for the first time, at least in his career, to experience rest, to experience a, a soul and a life that was no longer weary. Beloved, here's a question. Are you weary this evening? Don't hurry past it. Don't seek to answer it too soon. Are you weary this evening? We've had quite a year, haven't we? It's been filled with a toxic political discourse on all sides. It's been filled with massive social unrest that we haven't seen since arguably the 1960s. It's been filled with a pandemic that has caused job losses, the burying of loved ones and plans and dreams thrown down the drain. And to focus in even more, some of you are facing some of the most heartbreaking situations of your life, and simply getting out of bed each morning is an act of faith. Some of you are in your fight against sin or constantly teetering back and forth on the edge of giving up. Again, beloved... Are you weary? Weariness uh, is a complex thing. It's multi-layered. And because of that, if we're all honest, simple Christian platitudes aren't that helpful, are they? Cheer up. 
have more faith. It's going to work out. Beloved, what does Jesus offer to those of us who are exhausted this evening? What does Jesus give to those of us who are weary sinners and sufferers like you and me? One word, rest. What does Jesus give to the soul that is weary from its own sin and the sins of the world? One word, rest. What does Jesus offer to those of us who are constantly striving and seeking to be good moral people? One word, again, rest. Our text today is an invitation from Jesus to step away from a life of toil and exhaustion and to come and experience the rest that he alone can provide. Here in our text this evening, we have Jesus himself preaching the gospel to a weary and heavy-laden people. I know that I am in a room full of confessional Presbyterians, and I know altar calls make us a tad bit uncomfortable, but I like to imagine that, that Jesus is extending an altar call to all those who are weary. I like to imagine that Jesus isn't simply playing on emotions, but striking heart chords and telling all those who are exhausted to come. My hope my prayer and the, the aim of my preaching this evening is that you and I would experience something of this rest that Jesus provides. My prayer is that we would be a people, that you would be a, a church that is not known for all of the ministries that you offer or the amount of work that you accomplish or even your ability to expound correct theology. My prayer and my hope for all of us that we would be known as a people who experience this soul-satisfying rest that Jesus himself provides. It is to say that at the center of our identity as the people of God is this concept of rest. I want us to look at our text under two headings. I want us to see the invitation of Jesus. And then secondly, I want us to see the inner life of Jesus. So first, the invitation of Jesus and then the inner life of Jesus. First, the invitation of Jesus. Our text comes in the context where opposition and conflict are increasing between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. In verse 19, Jesus states that he is being accused and condemned for being a glutton and a drunkard who is friends with tax collectors and sinners. In verses 20 to 24, we see Jesus lay out some of the most severe words that he has said up until this point. Jesus is denouncing the severe unbelief and lack of repentance among the people of his day. You see, Jesus had been in their midst. He was performing miracles, teaching about the kingdom, and they respond unmoved and unfazed. The people in this city are seeing more miracles done by Jesus than any other city, and yet they refuse to humble themselves and receive Jesus and his kingdom. Instead, they seek to make Jesus into a mere circus act. Jesus responds to this unrepentance by praying to his father in verses 25 to 27. And in his prayer, he's rejoicing that his father is the one who reveals the glories of salvation to children, but at the same time hides it from those who think they are wise. Beloved, Jesus is celebrating the sovereignty of God in salvation. And it is on the heels of that prayer 
right after he utters his amen, Jesus extends an invitation for all to hear. You see, Jesus doesn't create this false dichotomy between the sovereignty of God and salvation and the need for sinners to respond to that call. In the beginning of verse 28, Jesus gives a clear and straightforward command. He even uses emphatic language. He says, come to me. Jesus is the one who just said in verse 27 that all things have been handed over to me by my Father is now telling all who would listen, come to me. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. And these aren't bad things, but he doesn't say come to a program. He doesn't say come to a set of propositional truths. He doesn't say come and get your life together. He says come to me. In the New Testament, there are several ways to say come, but Jesus uses a specific word that is a tad bit stronger than others. It's as if Jesus is saying here, hey y'all, over here, it implies that there's some distance and he's trying to get their attention and saying that all that you are looking for is found right here in front of you. How should we perceive these words flowing from the mouth of our Lord? Some commentators argue that this is a summons from a divine king. This is a summons from a king who is speaking to his subjects. But I don't think that's the picture Matthew wants us to receive. Rather, this is an invitation from a gentle physician who has the right prescription for our sin-sick souls. Beloved, this is a reminder that Christianity is a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. It is this receiving of Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. It is receiving Christ as he is clothed in his good news. Notice that Jesus tells us who this invitation is for and what he is inviting them to. First, this invitation is for all who labor and are heavy laden. The word labor is a word that means to become weary. You could translate it as toil. It is this picture of an individual who is tired and worn out from constantly working. This phrase, heavy laden, in its original language means to load or to, to burden. It's this picture of placing something heavy on someone's shoulders so that they might carry it. The language of the text suggests that Jesus is speaking both to the tendency that you and I have to unnecessarily place extra biblical burdens on ourselves, and at the same time, he is speaking to the Pharisees who have placed extra biblical burdens on God's people. The same phrase is used in Luke eleven forty six, where Jesus condemns the religious leaders and says, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch those burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus is extending an invitation to those of us who are tired and worn out from striving to impress God. Jesus is extending an invitation to those who are worn out by a Christian culture that is constantly saying, do more and be more and answer these types of questions. Jesus is extending an invitation to those who have been uh, extra burdened by the unrealistic demands of others. Jesus is extending this invitation to all those who cannot in and of themselves meet the requirements of God's law. 
when Jesus uses his word all, he means it. Everyone who has burdens, everyone who has baggage, everyone who is a failure, everyone who is haunted by remorse, everyone who has ruined their life, everyone who has sinned, Jesus says, come. Question on the table is what exactly is Jesus inviting us to? Every invitation requires the one who is invited to know what they are being invited to. The invitation that Jesus gives is a life of rest. Twice, Jesus speaks of rest in this passage. He says in verse 28, I will give you rest. Verse 29, and you will find rest for your souls. Every person, whether they are religious or non-religious, longs for rest. Many people work their whole life for the purpose of finally arriving at that moment where they can experience rest. Each of us has this innate desire for rest, and beloved, Jesus knows this about us and provides it. It is to say that Jesus is rest personified. It is to say that you will not find rest in any other person besides this Jesus. In verse 29, we see that Jesus promises, this promise of invitation of rest is not simply an escape from reality, but it is a rest that is in the midst of reality. Listen to verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Verse 20, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? Do you know what a yoke is for? It is an instrument for work. It's a wooden frame that is placed upon the shoulders in order to make a load or burden easier to carry. It's designed to distribute the, the weight evenly on both sides of the body. In the Old Testament, the yoke was sometimes used to speak of oppression. It was also used in the good sense of speaking of, the, of service to God. It eventually would be used commonly in Jewish writing, writings for obedience to God's law. And it was through the demands of the Pharisaic legalism that the yoke and the law of God became a, a burden and a new yoke was needed to lighten the load. Jesus is saying that I am going to provide you rest by giving you a new burden that is both easy and light. What is Jesus speaking of? He's speaking of his teachings. The Christian life is hard. In fact, Jesus, say, Jesus says it will cost you your life, but Jesus says that it isn't burdensome. There is a lightness, rather a restfulness, to the teachings of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, the parables, the Great Commission. These are not burdensome tasks, but they are teachings that are meant to bring you and I rest. Beloved, living life by your own rules, by your own law, your own set of standards, will always lead you to exhaustion and ruin. But a life that has lived in the way that Christ intended will lead you into deeper and deeper places of rest. For example, the sexual ethic that Jesus gives his people in the scriptures is meant to be for our good. 
our enjoyment, our flourishing, and I would argue our rest. But if you twist that, if you distort that, if you create it into your own image and make your own ethic, it will lead to shame, toil, and ruin. In chapter 12, we see Jesus in this controversy on the Sabbath with the religious leaders of his day. And what Jesus is doing is he is saying that you have placed extra biblical burdens, that you have required more on the Sabbath than I have required. And what Jesus is doing, he is saying that your own ethic, your own way of keeping this is utterly exhausting. In my previous church uh, in Chicago, one of my favorite parts of the liturgy was that whenever someone, whoever was preaching, would finish reading their sermon text, they would say, this is God's word, and it is written to us for our good. This taught me, this catechized me over time that every command that is spoken from the mouth of God, that is spoken from the mouth of Jesus, is not meant to harm, it is not meant to steal my joy, it is not to make me exhausted, but it is for my good. It is meant to lead towards a life that is characterized by rest. Beloved, is your Christian discipleship marked by this type of rest? When people who don't have any connection to the Christian faith, can they look into this community, this this people, and see a people whose life is marked by rest? Beloved, our communities need individuals and families and churches who both proclaim and offer to all people this rest that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you continue in your journey as a church, as you continue to to proclaim the gospel and plant more churches, make sure that rest is at the center of your identity together. And the only way that is possible is for you to make Christ and his gospel at the center of your identity. Beloved, this invitation that Jesus uh, extends towards a life of rest is only found in him. That's the invitation of Jesus. But secondly, notice the inner life of Jesus. When I mean inner life of Jesus, I mean the heart of Jesus. In the Bible, when it speaks of heart, it is not speaking of the organ. It is not speaking of our emotional life. The heart, according to scripture, is the center of our very being. It is, according to one writer, the the center of who we are. It's the reason why we do what we do. The reason you get out of bed in the morning, that is your heart. That is the center of who you are. And here in our text, we are told something of the heart of Jesus. We are told in in verse 29 that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Dane Ortland has written a fantastic book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I commend it to each of you. But in it, he points out something that was pointed out to him uh, about this text. He says, and I quote, in the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical texts, there is only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in hearts. 
We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart, in quotes. Beloved, who is this Jesus? Who is this one who stands and offers rest to us? Who is he at the center of his being? He is gentle and lowly. What pops into your mind when you think of Jesus? How do you imagine him responding to your questions, to your doubts, to your stubbornness? What about that vulnerable moment right after you fall into sin? The moment right after you said, I'll never do it again. How do you imagine Jesus in that moment responding to you? He responds as one who is gentle and lowly. To say that Jesus is gentle is to, say, is to also say that he is one who is meek. He is one who is not abrasive. He knows how to handle his people with care. Listen to Isaiah 42, verse 3, which is speaking of Jesus. It says that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This isn't to say that Jesus does, is one who lacks strength, far from it, but it is to say that he is one who knows how to control, control his strength. Again, in the words of Dane Ortland, Ortland Jesus is not trigger-happy. He is not harsh. He is not reactionary. He is not easily ex- exasperated. To say that he is lowly is to say that he is one who is humble. Most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, in the New Testament, this word lowly is used to speak of one's social conditions. It is speaking of one who is destitute. Paul uses this word in Romans 12, 16, when he says, not to be haughty, but associate with the lowly. All that is to say that Jesus is one who is approachable. It is to say that he knows how to handle sinners and sufferers like you and me. It is, it, it is to say that he knows how to interact with unimpressible people like us. The one who is highly exalted. The one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord at the center of his being. He is one who is approachable. This shatters our theological categories if we let it. Like good Reformed folk, we, we emphasize the exaltation and superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But according to this text, as we peer into his heart, as, as we ask questions of who he is and how he feels, it says to us that he is gentle and lowly. The hymn writer said it well. There is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No one could heal all our soul's diseases. Jesus knows about all our struggles. He will guide us till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No friend like him is so high and holy, and yet no friend is so meek and lowly. There's not an hour that he is not near us, not a night so dark, but his love can cheer us. There is no friend like the lowly Jesus. This gentle and lowly Jesus is the one who provides this yoke that we are able to carry. It is he who provides rest for our souls. A question that is worth closing out on and asking is what does it mean to come to Jesus? 
Preachers have a tendency to say that often, look to Jesus, come to Jesus. But I think most of us are confused about what that even means. How do we, how do we come to him and receive his easy and light yoke? I think there are several things we can say about this. But one, let me mention one. One of the ways, and I would argue the primary way, that we come to Jesus is through the means of word and sacraments. It is through the word of God and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper where we receive Jesus individually and collectively by faith. As we hear his voice call in and through the preaching of the gospel, we are invited as weak and struggling sinners to rest in the grace that is found in Christ alone. I mentioned earlier that Jesus extends this altar call, but beloved, in his gracious invitation, he doesn't bring us to an altar, but he brings us to a font and to a table to come and, and see the waters of baptism and a table where bread and wine are given to struggling sinners to remind them of God's favor and his delight in them and to strengthen their weak faith. Beloved, as we enter into another year full of chaos and turmoil, another year that will be full of unrest and uncertainties, come Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, whether you are running or, or limping or somewhere in between, come and receive Jesus as he offers himself to a weak and tired people like you and me. So in other words... To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and they long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ says to you this day, come. Let me pray for us. Father, you have been pleased to condescend to us, condescend and speak to us through your word. We ask that you would give us the grace to receive these words, not as the words of literal Gemirin, but if they are faithful, the words of God, the words of Christ. We ask that you would strengthen our faith and give us the grace we need to get through another week's journey. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and sing, uh, Joy Has Dawned Upon the World.